Climate Fight, the world's biggest negotiation, is a series supported by UK Research and Innovation, the UK's largest public funder of research and innovation. Colleagues, we were due to start an hour ago. Could I please request if colleagues would take their seats? With just a few hours to go in the COP26 climate change negotiations, the delegates on the floor won't take their seats. I'm sorry, I know I'm disturbing one of your discussions. They're having last-minute debates, and a huge huddle forms around US delegate John Kerry. But it's hard for journalists to see what's going on. It's a culmination of the two weeks of talks, behind closed doors, until now. Two weeks where protesters try to push for more action. And everyone tried to have their say. While negotiators tried to seal the deal. So how did we get here? It's hard to grasp the magnitude of the COP negotiations. 197 countries meet to make a deal. And there's no vote. All decisions must be taken by consensus. Back in their home countries, these delegates face different threats from climate breakdown. And they have different priorities for how to deal with it. Making this possibly the world's biggest and most important negotiation. The countries are debating the wording in a text. It contains points on how to cut fossil fuel emissions to limit global heating. But the part I'll focus on for this episode is the other key part of the debate. Adaptation finance and something known as loss and damage. What money rich countries should give poor countries to cope with the damage of the climate crisis that is already happening? I'm Jack Marley, and you're listening to Climate Fight, Episode 5, The Art and Chaos of Negotiating the Glasgow Climate Pact. On the second day of the two-week COP, things were just getting started. This was before I'd got to Glasgow, so I reached out remotely to Francois Germain. I'm a researcher. I work on the geopolitics of climate change. Uh, I'm heading a research laboratory in Belgium at the University of Liège, which is called the Hugo Observatory. I'm also lecturing on these issues in various universities, including Sciences Po and Sorbonne University in Paris. And I'm also a lead author for the IPCC. The IPCC. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It releases regular reports on the state of the climate crisis. We asked Francois to tell us how COP negotiations usually work and how the early days of COP26 compare. Firstly, who are these negotiators? The climate negotiators are usually diplomats who have been in the job for several years, which means that many of them know each other really well in a way that's like a small club of friends. Many of them have been working on this full-time for several years, which means that they are now able to master all the technical details of the negotiations. And there are also huge inequalities between delegations. The UN pays for the trip of two delegates per country. But if you're a rich country like France, the UK or the US, you can send dozens of delegates to the negotiation, which means that you have an expert 
on pretty much every subject. But when you are a poor country, you cannot afford to send many delegates. I understand that you've you've noticed some some of the many ways in which the quirks of how different countries choose to organize these things they can really fundamentally change the outcome of the negotiations themselves. Could you just give us some examples of how those things have really influenced some of the previous UN climate summits in other cities around the world? I think that a mistake that is commonly made is to assume that all these negotiations outcome are rational. But yet I would say that the human factor plays a key role in some of the negotiations. If you look at what's happening today on the day when we record this conversation in Glasgow, there are still lots of delegates that are waiting outside in the rain and in the cold, and no doubt that this will create some resentment amongst them against the organizer. In the first week of COP26, the number of people attending the summit was more than the event space had room for. After waiting in long lines, conference organizers told them to go home. The place was full. This brought back memories of what many consider the biggest failure of a climate summit, COP15 in Copenhagen in 2009. First, delegates had to wait for hours in the rain and the cold before they could enter the negotiation room, before they could retrieve their badge. And apparently, I'm afraid that the same thing is happening in Glasgow today. Another problem in Copenhagen was that the Danish presidency had tried to negotiate an agreement in advance of the negotiation through bilateral sessions with some key delegations, which meant that when many of the negotiators sat on the negotiation table, they found out that the Danish presidency had been negotiating behind their back to try and get a draft agreement. And of course, they were completely upset that they had come to Copenhagen to find out that some negotiation had already been going on behind their back. On the more positive side, some other examples, the conferences in Bali and in Cancun were successes. And I believe that part of the reasons for this success was that all delegations were pretty much in the same resort, which created a feeling of equality between the different negotiators. If negotiators have to pay really hefty prices in hotels in European capitals, this is likely to create some tensions between the delegations that can afford the nice hotels in the capital and the delegations that cannot and that have to sleep and to stay outside of the negotiation city. So these kind of little logistical details that don't seem to have any importance, but that create an atmosphere of goodwill or an atmosphere of distrust amongst participants, and really trust is key for the success of a negotiation. This year, the pandemic limited how many delegates, particularly those from poor countries, could attend. The first week of COP26 was busy, with big announcements from world leaders, including on cutting methane and stopping deforestation. Conserving our forest and other critical ecosystems is indispensable. Francois told me these could have set a positive tone, but they likely delayed the actual negotiations. This is the centre of why COP26 is happening, to agree upon a text that will determine how countries will implement the Paris Agreement and fight climate change moving forward. It wasn't until Tuesday evening of the second week that I grasped how late these debates really start picking up. 
Walking outside, we stumbled upon a delegate asking us for directions. We took the chance to ask how negotiations were going. And she said, Negotiations? The negotiations haven't even started yet. The morning of Wednesday. Three days to go until the end of COP26. The UK presidency releases a draft text of the negotiations. The draft text urges developed countries to pay more to help developing countries adapt to and mitigate the climate crisis, but it offers no plan to speed up funding. Remember, we heard in episode one that the goal was for rich countries to mobilise $100 billion a year by 2020 in climate finance. They missed that goal, and it's not now expected to happen until 2023. There are three main kinds of finance being discussed at COP. First, there's mitigation. This could be money for, say, a wind farm, to decrease reliance on fossil fuels. Then there's adaptation. This money could go towards building a seawall, for example, if your coastal community is facing rising sea levels. And the other is loss and damage. It's money for things people can't adapt to, in countries that didn't cause the climate crisis, but are seriously impacted by it. For example, loss and damage funding could permanently relocate a community whose homes are washed away by sea level rise. Poor countries are specifically calling for money to go to adaptation and loss and damage. It was the job of Alok Sharma, the UK government minister, and the COP president for the Glasgow summit, to put this all together based on the competing requests from all the different countries. UK is the host, needs to do everything he can till now and during these weeks to make sure that neutrality is central so that the various parties can trust the host. Trust is a very important, untalked of ingredient in reaching deals. This is Abane Mutu. He's a negotiations expert and professor of economics at the University of Warwick. You'll hear him throughout this episode explaining the negotiation theory behind what's happening. Second role is coordination. So what will happen over time, over these weeks, people will get tired. There'll be brick walls. Countries will give up and say, I'm walking away. The host has to be on their ball to bring people back to the table, to find creative solutions to roadblocks, to provide a lot of food and coffee so that people can, can hang around for two weeks. media aren't allowed in any of the negotiation rooms. So to get a sense of what people are saying about it, we need to linger in the corridors and stop delegates as they come out. This is how we meet Hadil Hisham Ikmaesh from Palestine. I was just hoping to get your take on the draft agreement that came out this morning. How do you feel about how that sort of summarizes where the negotiations are right now? Uh, We expected more, actually, the outcomes of this conference. We have a lot of things that we are negotiating upon. The financial situation, the climate finance is not satisfied for us. The adaptation is not also well recognized as much as we negotiated. It would be impossible for all 197 countries to negotiate with each other at once. So they break into different groups. These different groups are formed usually on the basis of common geography, interests, and wealth. Palestine is part of the G77 plus China, the largest negotiation group at COP26. And they're also part of the Arab group, 
which contains a mix of some of the poorest countries in the world, such as Sudan and Somalia, and some nations who make a lot of money from fossil fuels. It's led by Saudi Arabia. Palestine has a small delegation. Hadil says just 10 people at the COP, including the minister. Meanwhile, countries like Brazil and Russia send hundreds of people. In the history of the COP, Palestine has a unique story. It's the 197th party to be added to the conference. The very last one. It joined as part of the Paris Agreement in 2015. Before that, we were observers for many, many years, for 10 years or, or more. So that was a very uh, historical event, yes, for Palestine. That means that we are there. We're sharing the responsibilities and the obligations and sharing the same, the same story with the, the, with the whole world. After we became a party, a lot of success stories became there. We, we took funds from the GCF, Green Climate Fund. We uh, made a lot of riddance projects, started to work on capacity building. So things are going so so fast and we want for more and we aspire for more. Do you feel as if there is any momentum or any sort of movement towards an agreement? Well, some of the meetings were intense. Uh, it wasn't really a healthy environment. Uh, some of them were intense. It's supposed to be clear process that everybody in the same room negotiating for, for specific things. It's not supposed to. But what happens on the ground someone, sometimes is misleading. So you, you, sometimes you, have, you enter that negotiation room and you felt that, yes, that's it. Today we are going to make an advancement. And you face the opposite. And sometimes you go there and you're expecting that, go, that the atmosphere is going to be intense and no, on the opposite, we didn't came to negotiate. No, we came here to uh, listen uh, and to hear from you what you, what's your expectations. And uh, so you can't tell. Hadil tells us she came in fresh this second week of the summit so that her team could keep up its energy. So this is the second week is my first week. So I still have the energy to to negotiate more and because we divide the staff that one will come in the first week and uh, others in the, on the second week so I still have the energy um, I didn't lose hope yet so when you meet with the groups uh, your groups and where the countries that are in the same position in this situation with you you just feel that you have the energy to fight for for, for a very fair and ambitious some, uh, something that you need on the ground we are uh, developing countries that Palestine specific. It doesn't have any emissions. We, we didn't contribute. On the contrary, we want to help. We want to be part of this international uh, um, uh, good case, which is fair to everybody and sustainable. The next day, we meet with Francois again. Why does the presidency of the COP release a draft agreement, you know, a few days before the end of the summit? And could you give us some sense of how that draft agreement is arrived at? Like who signs off on it or who who agrees on its contents essentially? In yeah, basically the, the presidency usually does that. At some point, either they publish the text or they leak it. That depends on the style of the presidency. And they publish a text which they think could raise a certain consensus amongst member states. Obviously, they don't want to release a text that would be flat out rejected by most member states. So they need to have kind of the feeling or the sense that there is a general level of consensus against what they propose. And the reason why they make it public is so that they will be able to blame some countries if they do not agree with some of the wording. And they might be able to say, look, 
this is not the wording that we've proposed in the first place. If you are unhappy with the text, don't blame the presidency, but blame Saudi Arabia, blame Brazil, blame Australia. And clearly, this is part of a kind of negotiating trick that puts a lot of pressure on the countries that would not accept the text because they know that the text has been made public. And basically, they know that the public will be able to compare the early version with the final version. From your understanding, when do you think that no deal is better than a bad deal at COP26? I think really that a conference with a bad deal is always better than a conference with no deal. And let me explain why. Because this COP is not a one-shot event. All right? It's a continuous process. And I think that it is very important also for countries of the global south to keep the process rolling. And that at some point, if you had a stop in the negotiation process, I think that could lead to a kind of collapse of the whole system. We know that multilateral cooperation is fragile. So it's not as if you could have a kind of no deal and then discuss it against three months later. I think that if you had a, a complete failure on no deal, I think that the message being sent to the public would be would be quite disastrous. So I would rather have bad deal knowing that this deal can be improved later on than no deal at all. I would have argued the opposite if that conference had been a kind of one-shot conference. But that's not the case. That's a continuous process. Of all the parties here at COP26, who do you think it is most important for a deal to be agreed? I would say that the US is probably keen on having a deal because politically that would mark the return of them into the first agreement, the Biden presidency, their leadership on climate change. So... Same for the EU. They've announced the Fit for 55 package out of COVID. That would be also a big blow for the EU. I think that China or India would have no big problem walking out of here without a deal. But really, I think that the countries for which the deal is most important is probably the most vulnerable countries. In the evening, we meet up with a deal the Palestinian negotiator. She's clearly less relaxed than she was the day before. Time is just uh, moving to the final days. We are so much under stress and we're trying to push to have more decision about a lot of things. Regarding to the main issues that we've been talking and negotiating about the climate finance, it's very important because there is still no definition of climate finance. The UN says the Palestinian territories are vulnerable to climate change. They expect water shortages, flooding and problems with food security to become more common. Hadil and her colleagues are calling for a 50-50 split between money for mitigation and money for adaptation. She wants to make sure enough money is set aside for adaptation to help poor countries that need to deal with the immediate impacts of the climate crisis, caused mostly by rich countries. It's a historical right to the developing countries and on the developed countries to pay towards the crisis that we live. What are the things that the negotiators keep kind of disagreeing on or failing to reach consensus on when it comes to defining what climate finance should be and how it should be delivered? We don't get a response. Why there is nothing, a definition or well-defined uh, a definition for that, you don't have a response. Can there really be an agreement at COP26 without some agreement over climate finance? Uh, um, no, I don't think so. This, this, I, 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 
we are afraid that maybe things will become worse if, if we didn't take that those actions. Also defining, defining the, okay, we need to minimize to 1.5 some degree, but what is the price, what's the quantity, what's the budget for that? One thing we hear a lot about is how outsiders try to influence the negotiations. Sometimes these are green campaign groups, but they can also be oil companies. The Washington Post reported that the fossil fuel industry had the most delegates of anyone at the summit. We asked Hadil, have these groups ever approached her? Uh, us as Palestinians, no, we didn't, uh, we didn't be contacted to this kind of, of, uh, of actions. But yes, we, we've heard that Saudi Arabia has been uh, under this pressure uh, and um, they try to negatively influence the image of, of it during negotiation and trying to distract them from the, uh, leading the uh, Arab League for, for, for the uh, Arab delegates for these uh, actions. So yes... Uh, that was uh, it's something that we uh, we've been I'm being reported during the uh, negotiation in the in the um, meeting rooms. These are long negotiations. We asked the deal how she was holding up. Today was so hard actually, uh, with a lot of meetings from the morning. You are just jumping around from one meeting to another, and we have to continue. I haven't eaten right until now, so a lot of things becoming intense. A lot of colleagues uh, from uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia that didn't sleep uh, the whole night. They were in the negotiation rooms the whole night. Are you anticipating an even harder day tomorrow? Yes, yes, I, I guess so. We are just preparing ourselves for that. The UK presidency releases a new draft text on Friday morning, the last official day of the summit. It notes deep regret among developed countries for missing the $100 billion target of money for poor countries and urges countries to deliver on the annual climate goal by 2025. But overnight, the G77 plus China submitted a proposal for a loss and damage facility, a formal body for delivering that funding. For a lot of COP26, we're chasing small threads to find out what's going on in negotiating rooms. But we do know that one of the most powerful negotiators here in Glasgow is John Kerry, the US Special Presidential Envoy on Climate. And we know that he's been meeting with a group called the High Ambition Coalition. So we set up outside the meeting room door, next to about 30 members of the press, everyone lining up with cameras and microphones, jockeying for a spot for when he comes out. We wait, and before we can see Kerry, the co-chair of the High Ambition Coalition comes out. Simon Steele is from the Caribbean island of Granada. The test is We stood there for about half an hour until one of the cop staff came around the media huddle. I'm sorry? It's not there. He went out the back door. You're waiting for nothing. All this work for a peek inside negotiations with Simon Steele answering a few questions and giving no names of who he thinks might be blocking the negotiation process. It makes you wonder, is all this secrecy a good thing? This is again a well-studied matter. If you have the negotiations happening in public, then you're less likely to reach a deal and the reason is because they want to be able to voice their opinions privately and haggle with the country behind closed doors, partly because they don't want what they're going to say to be known to the public. And therefore, 
then willing to strike a deal that they would otherwise not do. Of course, the drawback is that the nature of the outcome, to do with the nature of the outcome, that the outcome, therefore, is less ambitious because the press, the activists like Thunbergs of this world are not able to scrutinize, the outcome will be less ambitious. So on to another part of the negotiations, what people call civil society. These are groups like NGOs, indigenous and community groups that all come to COP. They meet with negotiators and hold side conversations to try and pile on the pressure. But critics say COP26 has restricted these groups more than any COP before it. And more spaces were declared off-access to civil society. On Friday, hundreds of members from these groups walked out in protest. According to the official schedule, negotiations are supposed to wrap up tonight, Friday, so we catch a deal one more time. The multilateral agreed definition of climate finance was very intense. The discussion was very intense in the negotiation rooms, mostly between the USA and Saudi Arabia, which is the president of the Arab group. The USA not approving to have the final definition of climate finance, which is very dangerous for the Arab world and for the developing countries. The UK presidency is pushing toward having a positive feedback by the end of the day about the climate finance. And this is something that we are all working toward this. Hadil barely has time to talk before rushing on to another meeting. But before she goes, we ask, how much sleep is she getting? I did five hours. Yeah, the, the, they were satisfying for me. But other colleagues were just more intense and they have been in the process long time than, longer time than me. So, yeah, they have more burden than I do. But, uh, yeah. The negotiations drag on. The plenary due to start that evening is indefinitely postponed. It's going to be a late night. The diplomats are people who have mental strength and physical strength or physical stamina to withstand the pressure, the long hours, all-nighters. Negotiation is who's going to concede first and by how much. If I, as a negotiator, can drag out the negotiations, you know, say, well, let's, let me think about it, let's talk again, let's keep on talking, what about 2 o'clock in the morning? If you are able to do that because your cost, quote-unquote, cost is lower, and the cost being lower means you're stronger, your, your stamina is better, will get the other party who might be less strong mentally, it's also a mental strength, they may be willing to agree. This should be a concern for leaders when they decide who their negotiators are, the negotiators cave in or concede sooner than they should because of issues of not enough stamina. We walk into the conference centre on Saturday, not really knowing what to expect. The negotiations aren't done, but compared to the bustling halls earlier in the week, it's fallen quiet. Did you see on the screen that the informal plenary has moved to 12? So originally it was going to be last night. Yeah. There was never a time agreed and then it never didn't happen last night. And then it was going to be 10 this morning. And yeah. now it's 12. Finally, a new draft text is released. It offers the same amount of climate finance, still the $100 billion a year, 
but says it will double the amount put towards adaptation. And for loss and damage, it promises a series of dialogues. There isn't really much for us to do in the morning but read the update and wait it out, and try to connect with Hadil for an update on negotiations. So I just got a WhatsApp from Hadil saying that she's not coming today. Yesterday was exhausting. Maybe ask her if she was up late. I mean, we can just speak to her about this when we see her, I suppose. Yeah. Finally, the plenary is about to begin. But delegates in the room aren't sitting down. Colleagues, we were due to start an hour ago. Could I please request if colleagues would take their seats? I'm sorry, I am disturbing one of your discussions. At the centre of one large huddle is Simon Steele, the delegate from Granada who we heard earlier in the hall. We're too far away to hear anything. Press need to stay in a roped-off area at the front of the room. But Alex Sharma's now walking around talking to people, motioning to the large huddle of people that's appeared on the floor. And then a huge huddle appears across the room around John Kerry. We take the chance to leave the roped-off press pen and walk over to hear what's happening. But we're barely there before someone on the floor tells us the media that have gathered have to go away. Back in the press pen, photographers are pushing for the cop staff to let them out and take photos. One says this is a history-making moment that needs to be documented. And finally, Alex Sharma decides the current chaos can't be stopped. As you see, uh, there are a number of parties that uh, are still wanting to have a discussion and resolve issues. And I have decided that I think it would be useful to allow a little bit more time. Some delegates leave, but the room remains buzzing with activity. John Kerry continues to work the floor, talking to delegates. Then, finally... We may be in a position to uh, start this uh, informal stock-taking plenary. And Sharma opens the plenary by working to seal the deal. The negotiation will be dragged out until the last hour, last minute. So that's the role of the host. In terms of why is it so terribly important for the United Kingdom to get success? Success here means getting agreement, getting a text to which the countries sign up to. Even if, by the way, the text doesn't align with the host's interests, it's much more important that an agreement is reached then not reach, even though it might deviate from the UK's position. And that's because success of this matters so much for the UK, especially in the post-Brexit world, where, as we know, the UK government, the Boris Johnson Prime Minister, is trying to establish his credentials as a global leader. Reputation of the United Kingdom is at stake. So, friends, we have reached a critical juncture where we must come together and bring our hard work to a successful conclusion. And of course, we are at that stage in the negotiation when you and your delegations may be asking yourselves whether you can leverage this moment to deliver more for your country, for your region, or your group. And I implore you not to. And the floor opens to speeches from countries. 
First up is Guinea. The group expressed its extreme disappointment with paragraph 73 and 74 on a dialogue related to loss and damage. And then from China. All of a sudden, the room's a flurry of people walking to the back of the room to get translation headphones. Sorry. (laughs) It's a reminder about the challenges of negotiating across cultures and language barriers. The negotiations carry on. Most people say they're disappointed with what's currently in the text, but they're willing to accept the current draft agreement for the same reason as a delegate from the Marshall Islands. I am not willing to leave here with nothing. And they're ready to move on to the formal talks to accept the text. We will reconvene very, very shortly, so please stay in the room, and then we move to the formal plenary. Thank you. People seemed ready to accept, but the room is full of intense discussions again. Alex Sharma is talking with the Chinese delegation. He's shaking his head aggressively. And rumours surface that China and India are objecting to the wording around fossil fuels in the text, specifically around coal. These are the two countries Francois Germain predicted would have no problem walking out without a deal. Alex Sharma starts circling the room, showing people the text. And almost two hours later, he has a text with new wording that waters down commitments around fossil fuels. It's changed the wording on coal. It no longer says phase out, but instead says phase down. And people are unhappy. This commitment on coal had been a bright spot in this package. It was one of the things we were hoping to carry out of here and back home with pride. And it hurts deeply to see that bright spot dim. But they accept. Alok Sharma doesn't seem too happy about it either. I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. He pauses and looks down. And in the end, with the light knock of a gavel, the deal is accepted. Watching all this feels incredibly underwhelming. Weeks of passionate debate, years of countries pushing for their interests, coming to a head at this climate conference to light applause. Early Monday morning, we receive a message from Hadil. She said sorry for not answering us before, but she was exhausted, disappointed, and travelling. Basically, she doesn't think there's enough money, and she doesn't think there's a clear enough plan to deliver it. She says the agreement is not doing enough for the developing countries suffering the most from climate change. Then she also said, To be positive, this COP was full of energetic negotiators who believed in their case and fought for it, and she was honoured to be part of this huge event that brings everyone to the same table to solve a human-made crisis threatening our planet.
Hadil wasn't the only one disappointed. As we heard, many people from poor and developing countries were asking for more and clearer funding for adaptation and loss and damage from climate change. So I spoke with Lisa Van Haller to break down the gap between what these countries were asking for and what they got. Lisa is a professor of political science at University College London. What does the Glasgow Climate Pact text offer in terms of both climate finance and loss and damage? It's a good question, and there's a lot of nuance in it. But the headline findings are that in terms of climate finance, the agreement in the Glasgow Climate Pact um, it notes with deep regret that rich countries missed their 2020 target of providing $100 billion US a year to help developing countries. And it's particularly in the area of adaptation finance that we did see some progress at COP26. So in the decision text, rich nations are asked to at least double their support for adaptation measures. And that's going to be really helpful in developing countries prepare for climate change On loss and damage, again, there was a lot of activity at COP26 in Glasgow, and developing countries were really looking for new finance to help them cope with the effects of climate change beyond those which they're going to necessarily be able to prevent or adapt to. So really looking at some of those irreversible changes or uh, kind of residual damage even after you've tried to make changes. So what we got instead of finance on loss and damage was a dialogue about funding a new organization to give developing countries support. And we did get some commitments about kind of further work to provide that funding, but but no cash on the table is what kind of the upshot of it was in terms of finance for loss and damage, which was really the big thing that developing countries came into this COP United in asking for. How big is the gap between what developing countries were asking for during the negotiations and what actually came out at the end when the pact was signed? There isn't a straightforward answer. So actually what countries were asking for here wasn't a specific sum of money, at least not in any kind of public way in the negotiations that I was observing. What they were asking for was for the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage, which was established two years ago, but which is really just kind of existing in our imaginations at the moment. They were asking for that to be more fully fleshed out and for commitments to be made to provide that network, which will support countries in a kind of practical way, in a technical way, with helping them to deal with the losses and damage that they're facing because of climate change impacts. In what I sort of gathered from the negotiations was that developing countries were asking for the Santiago network to be able to deliver funds, essentially, to be a, f- a finance facility or to create some kind of finance facility that could deliver loss and damage compensation. Is that right? There's two slightly separate asks. So one is, let's develop this Santiago network and it needs to be funded. And then there was also a separate proposition on opening up a new window of loss and damage finance under the Green Climate Fund. And so that was kind of money that is kind of new and additional to what already exists for projects that are meant to reduce emissions or help countries adapt to climate change. And some of those projects that that talk about adaptation in that particular space under the Green Climate fund could be kind of argued to be loss and damage. Uh, there's a lot of types of work, for example, responding to kind of sudden sudden events, so like hurricanes or cyclones or floods that are not well suited to kind of that way of asking for money in that loss and damage space. 
But what's really difficult is it's really difficult to kind of pinpoint any type of number of what is needed for loss and damage. And there has been kind of recent research on this. So the OECD came out with something earlier this year. And we're really talking kind of in, you know, the trillions, billions of dollars. But one thing that countries were asking for is support in trying to understand what their needs related to loss and damage are, because a lot of the research on climate change impacts is really focused on countries in the north and not so much the developing countries. And so in some ways, it's even difficult to start to gather that data to identify the kind of scale of finance that will be needed to address loss and damage. But we know it's big. We know it's big. There's no question about that. What work do you think that developing countries want to see happen in the future and what kind of promises have developed countries made to change in the future? So I think probably what they want to see now between COP26 and COP27, which will be next year in Egypt, is for the Glasgow Dialogue, which was adopted in the COP26 Glasgow Climate Pact, for that to really be a meaningful exercise. I think developing countries really over the last eight years since loss and damage has been institutionalized in the UN regime, they have been calling for one thing. And really that kind of call is growing. There's a wider consensus among all of the developing countries now that there is finance needed to help them deal with the impacts of climate change right now with loss and damage today. And that that's happening and that the evidence is very clear that, you know, the sooner you begin dealing with it, thinking about how to prevent it or act in an anticipatory way is going to be kind of cost effective in the long term. But that for a lot of communities and vulnerable countries, this is already happening. It's getting to kind of the existential point and crisis point. And so what they really need is that funding to enable them to kind of deal with it. As Lisa says, the focus is already shifting away from Glasgow and the banks of the Clyde to Egypt and Sharm el-Sheikh. As Francois told us, these UN climate negotiations keep going on. They don't stop when the pavilions pack up and the delegates board their trains and flights home. Because if the world is to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees, and that goal is just about alive after Glasgow, then there's a lot more talking and negotiating to do. Thanks to everybody who spoke to us for this episode. And also to those we spoke to for valuable insight, but weren't able to fit in. Angelica Johansson, Richard Beardsworth, Sally Mulhook, Rachel Kite, and Nikki Reich. Climate Fight, the world's biggest negotiation, is produced for the conversation by Tiffany Cassidy. Sound design is by Eloise Stevens. And the series theme tune is by Nita Saal. Our editor is Gemma Ware, and production help comes from Holly Stevens. For this episode, we'd like to send a huge thank you to Rachel Murphy and Peter Sanford, who opened their home to us while we attended COP26 in Glasgow. During COP, accommodation fills up, and some residents of the Glasgow area helped out by offering their homes in the Human Hotel. Rachel and Peter made it possible for my producer Tiffany and I to attend, by giving us a warm bed and a hot meal every night. Thanks also go to Wilder Freitas, Stephen Harris, Joe Adetunji, Chris Wading, Katie Francis, Khalil Kasamali, Alice Mason, and Zoe Jazz at The Conversation. To James Harper and his team at UKRI, 
and to Imriel Morgan and Shirai White for helping us to promote the series. The Anhill is produced by The Conversation in London, and you can get in touch with us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us on podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free daily email by clicking the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this series, please follow the show and leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. Please tell your friends and family about the show too. If you missed any of the five episodes of this series, go back and listen now. We dive into important subjects that are relevant right on into next year as preparations for COP27 in Egypt begin. Thanks for following along with us as we track the world's biggest negotiation. I'm Jack Marley. Bye for now.